The Perks of Being a Wallflower was published in 1999. Unlike its teenage protagonist, Charlie, I was still in elementary school at the time, but as far as I can tell, its now iconic status grew out of a cult following. Since then, the book has gained more mainstream popularity, helped along, of course, by a 2012 feature film starring the one and only Emma Watson, among others. The Perks of Being a Wallflower is told through a series of letters from 15-year-old Charlie to an unknown recipient. Charlie is preparing to start ninth grade in Pittsburgh in the early 90s, and as if going to high school isn't scary enough, he has recently lost his best friend Michael to suicide and his closest relative, Aunt Helen, to a car accident. With the help of a pair of friendly, quirky, cool step-siblings named Sam and Patrick, Charlie finds his way into a fun friend group of seniors who help draw him out of his shell by introducing him to the Rocky Horror Picture Show and encouraging him to be a more active participant in social activities. Charlie nurses a crush on Sam throughout the book as she pursues older boys. He's also managing relationships with his family, a football star brother who is in his first year at Penn State and a brilliant sister who's coming to terms with her toxic dating relationships. As we get to know Charlie intimately through his letter writing, we begin to get a sense that there's something he's not telling us. And the truth is that he's been repressing a major trauma for years. By the end of the book, those memories come to the surface, and he's forced to confront their psychological effects. With that in mind, I'll note a trigger warning for the episode you're about to hear, in which we discuss sensitive topics like suicide, sexual abuse, dating violence, drug abuse, abortion, and negative experiences with coming out. In this conversation about the perks of being a wallflower, we also discuss the nuances of high school social life, consider how many heavy topics are too many heavy topics, share some of the many beautiful passages in this book, and reminisce on the days of AAM profiles and live journal. Today's guest is Caitlin Flynn. Caitlin is a freelance journalist who covers travel, politics, culture, and health through a feminist lens. Follow her on Twitter at KateRose609 and Instagram at Flynn. Check out Caitlin's work on her website at www.CaitlinRoseFlynn.com. If you haven't checked out the SSR website yet, you should probably do that too. Find us at www.ssrpodcast.com. Click listen to scroll through the show notes from all 55 of our episodes, including book recommendations from guests, movie trailers from adaptations, and links to articles you might find interesting. Click blog to read and subscribe to our recently launched blog. Every Friday, I post a new installment in the True Story series, where I share even more candid opinions about the title we discussed on the episode that week. Click support to learn more about Patreon, a platform that allows you to lend your support to SSR with a few dollars per month in exchange for a bunch of cool exclusive rewards, including newsletters, bonus episodes, and more. And finally, you can click shop to get yourself a set of SSR bookmarks or a tote bag. Don't forget to stay on top of all things SSR via social media as well. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Let me know that you're listening to the show by tagging SSRPod in your Instagram stories or by leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes. Those reviews really do matter. You know what else matters? Independent bookstores. And you can support them by getting your audiobooks from my friends at Libro.fm. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. I started listening to Brittany Cooper's eloquent rage on Libro.fm over this past weekend, and I'm really enjoying it. With each listen, we can take pride in knowing that we're supporting local bookstores. Thank you for supporting Libro.fm and the SSR podcast. A special thanks goes out to our Patreon sponsors, who are helping to keep the show going with their monthly contributions. You all are awesome. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, 
Hi, Caitlin. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. I'm so happy to be here. I feel like we need to give listeners a little bit of a sense of our background and how we know each other because it is very relevant. You and I (laughs) got to know each other around books. We spent a lot of time book talking in much more formal settings and sometimes drinking (laughs) at a bar after work. Caitlin and I met on my very first day at my publishing job in an HR orientation, I think. Like, I think you were sitting next to me and I was like, a friendly face. She looks like she's almost my age. Like, maybe we should be friends. Yes, I had started exactly a week before your first day, but they only do orientation every two weeks. So I had just been kind of chilling in the cube by myself waiting for you to start. And before I went to orientation, your uh, direct boss said, oh, hey, my new hire is going to be there. And she kind of described you and asked me to look for you. So I was kind of creepily looking around the room trying to ID you. I was like, who's my new friend? Yeah, I was so relieved. I was in the market for friends. (laughs) I was like such a baby. I was 21. I had never worked in like an adult job. Yeah, because you graduated early. Yeah, because you graduated early, so you were really... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not that I was... Not that I'm, like... No. Older, but <laughs> I had, like, just made the cut to be able to drink at work events. Like, I was... That's right. I was so young. Too. Yeah, I mean, remember yeah. people used to joke, like, oh, are you even legal to have this drink? Which is a whole other story that we're not going to get into on the podcast. <laughs> not going to yeah. go there. But the point is that Caitlin and I spent a lot of time talking about books and many other things. We spent nine hours a day within, like, two feet of each other for three years. Literally, yeah. And then we both became freelancers. <laughs> um, I always say that Caitlin was sort of my like freelance writing spirit guide because she <laughs> took the sweet. leap to go freelance before I did and kind of gave me the courage to do the same thing. That's so sweet. I'm not trying to embarrass you. It's just the truth. Um, <laughs> oh. And so I'm very excited to have Caitlin on the podcast today. And we're talking about the perks of being a wallflower. And before we really get into it, Caitlin, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your history with this book and why you chose it to discuss on SSR. Yeah, my history is I read it, I want to say it was around 14, uh, 15, around, I think I was definitely around the main character, Charlie's age. And this is one of the rare books that um, usually I remember plots very, very clearly with this one. I didn't really remember a lot of plot points. I more just remembered how it made me feel. So when you sent me um, some options to talk about today, I read the synopsis and it sort of jiggered my memory. And as you know this, sexual abuse is a topic that's really close to my heart. And it's really um, pretty much at the center of this book. It really, I mean, I know we don't get the revelation till towards the end about one character, but it obviously influences the behavior through the subconscious. This is always a timely thing to talk about, but um, I just thought there are a lot of important issues to talk about here that are affecting teens um, everywhere, and I think it's a really important book to address uh, how it handles this topic, what really rang true, and then just a a few problematic things that I would like to address as well. We always (laughs) love to address the problematic stuff. (laughs) Caitlin already mentioned sexual abuse as a key plotline in this book. Um, I already mentioned this in the intro, but I do want to reiterate a bit of a trigger warning for this book. There are quite a bit of heavy topics discussed, not only sexual abuse, also suicide. There's a lot of discussion about sexuality and uh, negative experiences with coming out. There's a lot of talk about mental health. So if you're somebody that is sensitive um, to hearing or reading about those topics, just note that we're probably going to be discussing them quite a bit today as it's prevalent really throughout almost every page of this book. So just want to make sure that we share that before we get started. Caitlin and I spoke a bit before we started recording because we're old friends, of course. So we were chatting about kind of how we wanted to approach this conversation. There's so much here. Um, It looks like this very slim little book, but it's just like chock full of not only heavy topics, but also beautiful writing and just like insane revelations on the part of this 15-year-old protagonist, Charlie. So we had an idea that we're going to do something a little bit different than anything that I've ever done on an SSR episode. Big things happening in season two, guys. Like, just (laughs) huge changes. In the first, probably third or so of the episode, we're just going to be talking generally about the book, asking the typical kind of book club style questions that you usually hear on the show. And then I think we're going to just kind of like go through the book itself and swap some of our our favorite or um, sort of most thought-provoking highlighted sections. Because if you've read this book, you know that it's really beautifully written. Um, And so I think in some ways there's no better way to discuss the book or to do it justice than to actually like share pieces of it. Um, And then we'll kind of go into our usual wrap-up format. So if things feel a little bit different, it's because we planned them to be that way. But we're going to get started in kind of the usual way. Some quick facts about the book. It was published in 1999 by an American writer named Stephen 
Okay, he has a, a hard to pronounce last name. Do you know how to pronounce his last name, Caitlin? Um, I've been saying it Chubsky, Chubsky, but I'm probably wrong, so I wouldn't go by that. I, I'm going to though because I think that's what I would say too. It's spelled C H B O S K Y, Chubsky. Um, Stephen Chobsky, it was published, as I said, in 1999, set in the early 1990s, based largely on the author's own experience growing up in Pittsburgh. Um, I found some interesting information about his writing process while I was getting ready to record with you today, Caitlin. Um, It took him five years to develop and publish the book. Most of it actually happened while he was in college. He had been working on one book project, and then he pivoted to this book project, and he was kind of like trying to figure out the two and how he was going to pursue one versus is the other. And in the original book, he wrote a sentence that read, I guess that's just one of the perks of being a wallflower. And that led him to kind of like discover the character that he really wanted to write about in the second book project, which went on to be the book that you and I are talking about today. He had just gone through a really bad breakup and he was asking himself a lot of questions about like why quote unquote good people let themselves get treated so badly. And it, it sort of inspired this thought of we accept the love we think we deserve. I highlighted that. Yeah. How many... <laughs> AIM profiles do we think that quote showed up in in like the early aughts oh like at least 50 every angsty including me mm-hmm. uh, it was definitely in mine there I remember if you I'm, I'm, st- I'm both happy and sad well we'll get we'll get to the quotes yeah but I yeah. think that even people who didn't read this book really like dug into it for their aim profiles yeah and I, I was thinking about my experience reading this book and it's a little hazy for me I think I read it in later high school maybe early college but I, this feels like something I would have found my way to before college. I didn't have a lot of time to do leisure reading in college. So I think I probably read this my sophomore, junior, senior year. It was sort of like very far into my own experience in a lot of ways, not only because of some of the sort of heavier subjects, but also because there's a ton of drinking in this book, a ton of drug use. And that was not something that I participated in in high school, not for any reason other than the fact that it just never crossed my path. Um, It wasn't the culture that I was really like moving in socially. I also was not having the kind of sexual experiences that these characters are having when I was in high school. um, Because in addition to the sexual abuse that we were talking about, there are some consensual sexual experiences that happen in this book. And that was also very removed from my own experience. So reading this book as a high school, I'm kind of surprised that I connected with it in any way, just because it was so out of my comfort zone. Like I was kind of a kid that would have been like a little put off, not in a judgmental way, but just in sort of like an uncomfortable sort of way with this kind of culture in a book. Um, So I don't know. I don't know if I got swept up in it because it was such like a cult classic and I wanted to be cool and like it, but it surprises me that I was not like scared off by it. I can relate to that in a number of ways. Um, First of all, you know this about me, but just for listeners, I actually didn't go to high school. I was a ballet dancer, so I did online school starting um, in seventh grade. So I didn't have high school experience. And I probably, when I read it, I just assumed that this was what high school experience was like. I think I probably drank maybe like two or three times during my high school years. And I think I got caught like the second time, which is hilarious. That would happen to me. Luckily, (laughs) my my, my parents like thought it was funny. They were just like, you're an idiot. Um, But, um, but yeah, I, on many levels of what you're saying, like, yeah, first of all, I didn't go to high school. So that was not something I could really relate to. I definitely did not really, aside from those two instances where two sips of beer got me in trouble. I didn't drink, didn't do drugs. I was not uh, consensually sexually active between ballet and school, did not have time to even like think about guys or, or dating or anything like that. So I do think that maybe for me, a reason it resonated was that there was this focus on trauma. At the time that I read it, I wasn't really in touch with my own trauma or dealing with it on a conscious level, but obviously it was affecting me subconsciously. So I think for that reason, the characters resonated with me and some of the themes resonated with me. But in terms of their actions and how they were coping, it was very, very different than... um, how I reacted to similar instances. Well, and reading this book now, I was so much more aware of the traumas in this book. I was lucky as a teenager to not have experienced any level of this sort of trauma. And so I think um, if I'm being honest, when I read this book as a high schooler, I was probably much more 
interested in what kind of felt like this like gritty glamour around like being involved with this particular group of kids that Charlie stumbles into and because I wasn't interested in drinking or drugs or dating really very much like being removed from that in high school I think lends it all sort of this air of like excitement and it felt very yeah it felt gritty and glamorous in a way that that's really the only way I can describe it and um I just I wasn't very in tune with what was actually going on emotionally with Charlie and I think that I had probably read some of these quotes in a handful of instant messenger profiles and that's honestly why I probably picked it up like I don't know how else I would have found it it wasn't like a huge hit up front it became much more popular with the movie and it grew out of this cult following as far as I can tell and so it was just so fascinating to me reading it as an adult to realize that there's some really heavy subjects present in this book and from every angle and you and I texted about that a bit last night and I wonder if you want to go into it a bit more about how like it's a, it's a lot and perhaps a bit heavy-handed. What do you think? I would say my biggest criticism of it is that it's almost like he had a list of high school problems of like every possible high school problem and was trying to check it off. It has literally everything. Teen dating violence, drug abuse, sexual abuse, um, pregnancy, and abortion. And of course, I think at any given high school, all those things are going to be going on, but not in necessarily in one small group of people. And I think with certain topics like that, like for instance, uh, Charlie's sister who has the physically abusive relationship with her boyfriend, I don't think he did that enough justice because a lot of these topics were brought up, but only for a few pages or very briefly. And I think if you're going to take on any difficult topic, you need to do it justice. I, I just wanted more. I wanted to know, you know, what's going on with this sister that makes her feel unworthy of a relationship where she is physically and emotionally respected. So yeah, I think my least favorite thing was he literally was trying to check off all the boxes and in doing so, I don't know if minimized is the right word, but just didn't delve into them as much as they deserved. I do think that certain issues definitely go hand in hand, like Sam and Charlie had both been sexually abused. So it's not surprising to me at all that they were self-medicating through alcohol, drug use. I think that's common. So I definitely think you can tackle a few issues at once. I think an example of a book that did a great job of that is, you know, you, you know how much I love Speak. It's obviously centered around Melinda's rape and then the bullying, the self-harm and the eating problems are all um, very directly related to that. But in this book, it felt kind of busy at, at certain times. It was just bringing up side characters and them facing these issues, but not really delving into the impact. So yeah, I think that was my biggest, that's probably my biggest criticism of it. I think that's fair to say. I think you're right. It doesn't minimize any of the individual issues, but it does sort of cause various topics to get lost in the mix. And I think almost any of these characters, given sort of the weight of what they're dealing with in this book, probably merit their own book. Like, I would love to know more about Patrick and Brad and, like, their relationship and how this, like, football star got involved with this sort of, like, artsy, offbeat, yet popular music kid. Like, how did they find each other and get involved with each other? Like, I want to know so much about Sam. I actually have written down, um, it would have totally changed the book, but I would have liked chapters from Sam's perspective because we know actually very little about the nature of her abuse. And I think it was hinted at at one point that um, I know she was dating older guys. I think it was kind of hinted at that she was eventually raped by a person separate from her initial abuser. I mean, that might have just been me inferring. It did, she didn't explicitly say it, but I did get an impression when Charlie was talking to her about his upcoming date with Mary Elizabeth and um, how to say no if you're uncomfortable. And he asked her, does it always work? And she just said, well, sometimes. And I kind of got the impression that she wasn't referring to her childhood abuser, which Mm. I think happened when she was seven. And I know she was dating some older guys who were not great. So I kind of thought that she may have been a victim of date rape. I mean, there was definitely a lot more going on with her than we were privy to. So I definitely would have liked, I would have loved a few chapters from her perspective. So I totally agree with you about that. I think all these characters, it would have changed the entire book. And maybe it speaks to how good the characters were that you wanted more from them. I think it does. I would love a Sam book. I agree with you that some chapters from Sam's perspective would have been interesting. But I think given the nature of Charlie's feelings for for Sam, which listeners, if you have not revisited this book in a while, Charlie has this basically like really intense crush on Sam essentially from the day that they meet. And as much as I would have liked to know more about Sam 
selfishly, I think the fact that we don't know that much about her from Charlie's perspective kind of adds to this air of like she's untouchable to him only until the end when they have this super intense conversation where she's like, I didn't want you to have a crush on me because if you're going to like me, I want you to just act normal around me. Like I don't want to be untouchable to you. I want to be somebody that you're like actively pursuing. I don't want you to just sit around thinking about me being perfect. And I don't know that it would have been as easy to accomplish that if we'd known more about her, whether from, you know, chapters written in her perspective or otherwise, like even if we'd gotten more about her from a third person perspective, I think it would have been harder to be on that ride with Charlie of just kind of watching her from afar if we'd had a little bit more insight into who she was and what she'd been through. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I also think it is realistic because these are things that in general people don't talk about. So I think us looking at her from afar is um, kind of an important lesson to how we look at anyone. Like, I think we all see these people in our lives who we view as untouchable or we admire them, we want to be them, we have a crush on them and we see them in a certain way and we don't really take into account what they've been through. We just are looking at the surface. So that's definitely a good point. We're talking a little bit about format and about how we would have loved maybe perspectives from other characters. While we're on this subject, let's take a minute to discuss this format that the author ultimately went with. It's an epistolary novel. It's written in letters, um, but the recipient of the letters remains unknown to us. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Do you like reading books written in this kind of letter format? Did you enjoy that as a kid reader? And do you think it matters that we don't have a lot of information about who Charlie is actually writing to? So I had actually forgotten that this was a format, that it was letters. I just remembered it as being a first person narrative. So that's something that when I started reading it this time around, I was like, oh, I forgot about this. To me, it kind of read like a diary. I did like it. Um, In terms of the recipient, I thought about that more after I finished reading it, more again last night. I I interpreted it. I could be totally wrong. I think the recipient was really the reader. I don't know that it mattered who the recipient was. I kind of interpreted it as Charlie trusting us, the reader, with his innermost thoughts and to go on his journey with him. So that was my interpretation. I'm sure there are theories out there of who it could have been. What did you think? I feel like I read a lot of books in this kind of a format when I was growing up and I liked them a lot. I liked any book that had sort of like an interesting format. I liked when books were told in, I guess, texting wasn't a thing really when we were growing up, but anything that was told in like notes from friend to friend or, you know, longer letters occasionally, postcards. And I I think especially when we were younger, that was like such a trend in young reader and middle grade books. So I think that was probably very refreshing for me as a high schooler to find this book and be like, oh, I remember when I used to read books that were told this way or, or stories that were told this way. I liked it. I, I find that it really is a way to give readers a really intimate window into Charlie's experience as a freshman in high school and into his mindset as he's dealing with a lot of trauma. We haven't even gotten a chance to note this yet because there's so much going on in this book, but we meet Charlie when he's already in the midst of trauma. His best friend has just committed suicide at the end of eighth grade, and that's part of why he's experiencing so much anxiety going into freshman year of high school because his only friend really in middle school is no longer around. So not only is he feeling lonely, but he's dealing with the trauma of losing that friend and, of course, all of the depression that comes with that. And he's been working with psychiatrists, and we we already are meeting him from a place of struggle. Um, And so I think the fact that he is opening his heart and his soul to whoever's on the other end of these letters gives us such a thoughtful picture of where he is emotionally. And I don't know that we would have gotten that even from sort of a more standard, like first person narrative. Yeah, I agree with that. I really did like the format. And I think ultimately, I mean, as I said, my interpretation was their address to the reader. But to me, it didn't really matter. I think what mattered was that it meant we're getting a very authentic honest version of Charlie that probably no one else was seeing. So that was really powerful. So let's start talking about these passages in the book. I think that there are so many ways that we could talk about the characters and about the plot of this book. And I think that because the writing is so good, actually sharing some passages from it is a great way to get into it. And as we share some of these, I'm sure that we'll have conversations about other things that are happening in it. So I'll start because I think 
I found this one, and I know it's particularly iconic. Um, as I was reading it, I was like, again, this was probably in a lot of AIM profiles, and it's one that a lot of people think about. <laughs> it's kind of long. Listeners, excuse any um, page rustling. This is unusual, but I think this is the right way to do it. So here's page 38 of the movie tie-in edition of The Perks of Being a Wallflower for those following along at home, and I'm sure nobody is reading along. But Patrick started driving really fast, and just before we got to the tunnel, Sam stood up, and the wind turned her dress into ocean waves. When we hit the tunnel, all the sound got scooped up into a vacuum and it was replaced by a song on the tape player a beautiful song called landslide when we got out of the tunnel sam screamed this really fun scream and there it was downtown lights on buildings and everything that makes you wonder sam sat down and started laughing patrick started laughing i started laughing and in that moment i swear we were infinite such a good passage such a good passage and I don't know if it like became more iconic with the movie I wasn't like a huge fan of the movie but I have seen it I'm not not a fan of the movie to be clear it just it's not particularly memorable to me I do however remember this scene very clearly of them going through the tunnel and this is all taking place in Pittsburgh listeners if you haven't been to Pittsburgh and you've read this book or watched this movie you should totally go to Pittsburgh just to drive through the tunnel because my sister went to college in Pittsburgh and I do have this very distinct memory of going to visit her for the first time and driving through that tunnel and having a flashback to the perks of being a wallflower. That's so cool. I've never been to that tunnel, but I love this scene. Of course, this was, you know, one of the ones that really stays with you. I think it just, it does bring back nostalgia to those teenage years when you have just these moments where everything negative in your life just fades away and you're with your best friends. You're so happy that there's even a particular reason and you just want it to last forever. It's like a moment you want to last forever and it feels like it will and sadly it can't. I found this really great essay in Bustle on Bustle from 2016 and the title is How the Perks of Being a Wallflower Restored My Faith in Infinity Without God. It oh, was- fascinating. And the author of this article was raised in the Christian church. And after 20 years of being raised that way, she stopped believing in God and she felt a lot of loss, which makes sense when that's sort of been your community and your belief system for two decades. And I basically like highlighted my way through her whole essay, which I'll include in the show notes. But it really relates to the passage that we're talking about. Um, She writes, Charlie's infinite moment reminded me that I can connect with this world in a multitude of ways, not just in a church. It might be a song or a stretch of road. It might be a night sky. It might be a friend laughing into the wind. Charlie needed Patrick and Sam to bring meaning to his life, and I needed Charlie's story to bring meaning to mine. Now I could find the meaning of life in an old sandwich if I looked hard enough. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm going to have to read that whole essay. It's really great. And just his friendships with Sam and Patrick are so interesting. What did you make of their dynamic coming back to it as an adult? Because it's not a dynamic that makes sense right off the bat. And as a no, kid, yeah, not. like I, I th- I'm sure I read it differently as a kid than I'm processing it now. What did you make of that this time around? It was definitely unique in the sense that he was a freshman and not a popular freshman. And these uh, seniors who were on the more popular side uh, sought him out and wanted to be friends with him. I think rereading it, I think the, a big part of the reason that he and Sam had such a strong connection was probably subconscious that they'd had these similar experiences as kids that at that point, I know Charlie, Um, didn't even remember his own trauma. But of course, it's always there in your subconscious. So I think it does show that people really gravitate towards each other in these shared experiences. And I think that can be, I I don't like to use the word that like positive things that come out of trauma. But I like as I was reading it, like very much through, I I read it very much through this lens of trauma this time around. And it just made me think about like certain friendships that I formed with people. Um, I gravitated towards people sometimes in my teens in college who we didn't have a lot in common and we wouldn't necessarily have been the types of people who others would have assumed would be friends. But we had kind of an instant connection and we didn't even share our pasts with each other right away. It was more once we came close, we did. So I think it really speaks powerfully to how if you have like trauma in your past, you can really connect with other people, even if you're not just sitting down and explicitly talking about it and getting into the gory details. Um, I think the bonds you form with people who have been through similar things are really powerful. And sometimes you don't even know why you're forming those bonds. And that's, I think, how deep it goes. So that was kind of how I interpreted why uh, Charlie and Sam became such close friends. I think they just, on a subconscious level, really understood each other. And and they were both coming from a similar background. They were handling it, I think, in very different ways. 
but internally, I think they had a lot of the same struggles. Yeah, it's, it's almost like Charlie has picked up certain attributes and qualities without knowing that he's picked them up because he's been through such terrible things, not only the trauma that he can't recall, but also the loss of his friend, also the loss of his Aunt Helen, who he's not aware at the beginning of the book, but he realizes later on um, was actually his sexual abuser when he was a child. But he's just recently been through the loss of these two very important people in his life, and he's I think, become sort of wise beyond his years as a result of managing those traumas. He also has this deep sensitivity that I think Sam and Patrick are very drawn to, and I think they also share in that with him. Sam, maybe because she's gone through similar experiences herself, but they connect on kind of this energetic level almost, and they just understand each other very quickly. And I think that is a thing that can happen in high school. I don't want to say like when you're young, because you and I are hardly old, but... Mm -hmm. I think that there's sort of like this recognition that can happen, especially in kids and teens where you just kind of get each other based on your energy. And there's like this unspoken thing that can sometimes go on in making a new friend. Definitely. Yeah. I love the details of the friendship, like the scene that we just spoke about with like driving through the tunnel and standing up and playing landslide. I mean, I love Fleetwood Mac, so. Who doesn't? Right. I mean, the best. And so the fact that landslide was a song that was playing and the fact that Sam and Patrick love the Rocky Horror picture show and that's their thing like I love that Charlie comes into this group that is so well established not only in its relationships but also its traditions it like gives him the sense of structure that I don't think he's had really not even in his family no his family is dysfunctional in their own way like they're very aloof and distant um it was interesting I did like his relationship with his sister a lot I actually highlight a passage about that I thought that was interesting but I think he really did need I think they they became his family what did you think about the fact that his siblings didn't have names listeners this really interesting thing goes on sort of like nuts and bolts wise in the writing so all the friends have names there's like friends of friends of friends who have names there's friends of boyfriends that have names but Charlie has a brother and a sister and we never learn their names he just refers to them as my brother, the football player, my sister with the boyfriend. That's all we get. We don't know what their names are. What's that about? Uh, Right. I actually went back after I took all my notes and I was like, why do I not remember his siblings' names? And then I realized it's because they're never said. I think it does indicate a level of disconnect with the family and how, yeah, no one's doing anything in the immediate families doing anything terrible to each other, but they're all, I feel like all five family members are very much in their own worlds. And I think that's why I really loved the scene when he took his sister, when she needed an abortion, when he took her and they had, you know, that bonding moment where she chided him for smoking and she was like, I'm going to tell mom and dad. And they both just like burst out laughing because of the circumstances. And I think like, to me, I don't don't know why I just really loved that scene because that it just like sums up a brother sister relationship to me. I have an older brother, the same age difference. He was a senior when I was a freshman and it's like, we're really close, but you know, you're constantly snipping at each other over stupid things. But but when the chips are down, like you're going to have each other's back and make sure you're taken care of. So I did, I did really love that scene in particular, just because it was, I think, so realistic. But I think overall, they weren't close. I mean, after that, I was hoping that it would be a long-term bonding moment for them. But then it pretty much seemed to go back to she had a new boyfriend and she was like, go away. We don't want you here. And and that just made me really, I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, it's typical, you know, I'm, I've been the younger sibling, <laughs> yeah. but it just made me um, kind of sad that that wasn't a lasting like bonding moment for them. And maybe it was because of his past that again, subconsciously, some of his past trauma did involve family, not immediate family, but his siblings were present when it occurred. They didn't know it, the trauma was occurring, but they were there. I think it did make him maybe feel pretty distant from his family. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to have your abuser be in your own family. He still, I think, loves his abuser, even when he realizes what she's done. It's It makes things so much more complicated when, for those of us who it's not in the family, it's just like, oh, I hate this person. Yeah. It's so much easier to do. So I think maybe he's sort of protecting himself in that way. And I think also part of the reason he may have 
repressed it, some of the memories is because he doesn't want, he's not someone who ever wants to burden anyone. And I think he knew that it would have broken his parents' hearts. And um, I think Sam, uh, there's a passage that I highlighted where Sam is telling him, you know, you can't just always put everyone else first. That's not love. Like his parents, you know, for all their flaws, really did love him and really did want to help. You know, they did step up when, when they realized that he needed help. But I think it really speaks to that. He was not only protecting himself, I think he was also trying to protect his family because I mean, how heartbreaking is it for a parent to realize that their sibling is the one who inflicted so much harm? Yeah, he has this very complicated relationship with Aunt Helen for really the vast majority of the book. He's grieving Aunt Helen, and there's this really heartbreaking story about how she died. Charlie's birthday is Christmas Eve, and so he's sort of accustomed to not getting two presents for most people. He says there's only a handful of people in his life who buy him a birthday present and a Christmas present, and Aunt Helen was one of them, sort of, I think, the only person outside of his immediate family who did that, and she died in a car accident coming home from picking up his second gift. So he, you know, even before we're aware of the trauma that he experienced at the hands of Aunt Helen, there's already some really like deep emotional stuff going on between the two of them because I think he really blames himself for her death because it's like, well, if she hadn't felt the need to go out and get me a new present, then she would still be alive, which is obviously not a healthy or accurate way for a kid to think about a loss in their family. But I'm sure it's something that many people experience in all kinds of ways after the loss of somebody they love. So he's sort of working through that and this memory of sexual abuse when he was younger comes up later on in the book really I think maybe with 10 or 15 pages to go when he and Sam Mm -hmm. are like finally having their moment he's helping her pack for school and she kind of like asks him to lay all of his cards on the table and he finally admits that he cares about her and they start kissing and he stops her as it gets further because all of these memories of what happened to him when he was a kid with Aunt Helen are coming to the surface and it further complicates an already complicated relationship with his dead aunt. Yeah, and that to me was a really realistic scene because I think with trauma, anything sensory, like touch, smells, taste, that's what's going to trigger a memory. So that was a really powerful scene to me. I think that was handled really well. I think that the depth with which the author explores certain of these topics especially sexual abuse, I feel, again, I have not experienced these traumas, but it it feels very thoughtful to me as a reader. And I think it's so easy to gloss over or at least to sort of like fake it with some of these subjects as an author. And I feel like you really took the time to do it thoughtfully and diligently. Definitely. And I think everyone obviously reacts to sexual trauma differently. And I think he did a really good job of showing two very different coping mechanisms. With Charlie, there's this, he places, you know, a distance between himself and everyone else. And then the way Sam copes is by, I think she's trying to take back control of her own sexuality. So she's pursuing relationships with older guys. Um, I think she's pretty sexually active. And those are both two, um, they're on different ends of the spectrum, but those are two of the most common responses. You either like withdraw entirely. You don't want anyone to touch you. You don't want to date. You just don't want any part of that. Or in an effort to take back control of your sexuality, you um, initiate sex. You initiate relationships, maybe more so than someone who hasn't had that trauma. So I think the author did a great job of showing how different people react. And those were both very realistic reactions to me. Um, I do a lot of activism in this area and I've seen both in more times than I can count. I have several other passages highlighted, but if there's one that you want to share, I mean, I knew this would happen. Of course, it's such a great way. Maybe I'll do this more. Like maybe we're pioneering SSR here, but sort of there's so much conversation that comes out of like one beautifully written paragraph in a book like this. Is there anything that you wanted to share or do you want me to just keep spitballing here? I think I'm going to read the one about Sam's description of Charlie as a wallflower because at first I have it marked, but I can't find it right now. But someone at a party says to him, you watch and you take everything in. And that's kind of how wallflower is defined. But then I think Sam, and this is again at the towards the very end, um, I think she lays it down in, in a better way. It's sweet and everything, but it's like you're not even there sometimes. It's great that you can listen and be a shoulder to someone. But what about when someone doesn't need a shoulder? What if they need the arms? or something like that. You can't just sit there and put everybody's lives ahead of yours and think that counts as love. You just can't. You have to do things. And I think she's really putting a challenge to him on a number of levels. I mean, of course, 
um, the issue now has now been brought up that he does have really strong feelings for her. But I think she's also speaking on a broader level that he really needs to be more of an active participant in his own life. And and he does that. I have that highlighted too. Um, I think he really takes her message to heart and he gets treatment, which is really important. He goes to the hospital and gets a lot of much needed therapy. This is kind of his conclusion, which I loved. And I think everyone can learn from, even if we don't have the power to choose where we come from, we can still choose where we go from there. We can still do things and we could try to feel okay about them. So I like that about, you know, taking back ownership of, yeah, these things happen to us that we can't control and we can spend our life being mad about them. And, and I mean, we certainly have the right to feel angry and I certainly <laughs> have gone through that, go through that process. Um, but we do have a say in our future and just because control was taken away from us at one point in our lives doesn't mean that our entire life is out of our hands. We can go forward and feel empowered and make decisions that are going to be best for us, best for those around us, and really not be such a wallflower anymore. Be be proactive, you know, go after what you want. Don't be afraid. So I, I really liked that message. Um, I really liked it. Those are both great passages, and I'm so happy you shared them. This is just occurring to me now um, as we're talking about it. But so the two kind of perspectives that you just shared in those passages, first, the one from Sam, basically like telling him that he needs to be a more active participant in his own life. And then his sort of summing up of how you can't control certain aspects of your life, but you can take control of what you choose to do going forward. Those passages specifically come from the end of the book when he's kind of in the thick of working through the realizations that he's had in those final scenes. What's interesting to me is that so much of the rest of the book is kind of a training ground for him to do those things because earlier in the book, we hear from his teacher, Bill, who's kind of become his mentor, um, mm-hmm. who's been encouraging Charlie to like also participate in his life in different kinds of ways. But Bill's talking about things like being social and like getting involved at school and doing activities and like not just thinking all the time. And Charlie figures out how to do that. He gets involved with this group of friends with Sam and Patrick. He goes to football games. He goes to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. He performs in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like he's really pushing out of his comfort zone to be more active in his own life. And he's similarly to like the way he's reflecting at the end, like he's realizing I can't necessarily control the fact that I wasn't social before. I can't control the fact that I lost my best friend before we got to high school, but I have the agency now to make different kinds of decisions and be active in my own life. And I think that I definitely really hadn't picked up on the parallels between the two situations where it's like he's learning how to be an active participant by going to these activities as a quote unquote like average kid. And then at the end of the book, he's having to like be an active participant in his own mental health and in decisions about like how he's going to feel as he grows Mm -hmm. up. And so I think that's kind of cool. Like you see that happening at both levels. Yeah. And I think the age difference between he, Sam and Patrick, because of that, they have to leave for college and he's still in high school. So I think he, um, as he's being released from the hospital, he's preparing to start his sophomore year. And I think as much as it's sad for him that they're gone, I think it's good because it gives him a chance to get out there and, you know, be more social, form his own friendships, not just, I think they really approached him, but which, which is great, you know, like, but I think it gives him a chance for a new start and he can still maintain his friendships with him, of course. And I know he plans to, but I think sophomore year is going to be a new start and he has a new level of self-awareness about his past, about himself. And I think he kind of like ends it with saying like, things aren't perfect, but I'm going to be okay. And yeah. so are you. And I, I really like that message. Like it's not going to be perfect, but he's armed with like this new sense of empowerment. And I think he's going to be more active and he doesn't need Sam and Patrick there to have a social life. I think he's better equipped now to look around and see who might be some good potential new friends for him and join activities. I know he's a great student. So I think it had a very hopeful ending that he feels like he's going to be okay. And I think having that attitude is going to serve him well. And, you know, I think he ends with assuring the reader of the letters, which is us, the reader, it's going to be okay. And, and I think it's it's a nice message, too, because a lot of kids reading this are going to have dealt with similar issues, whether it's the loss of a friend, abuse, really, like any type of trauma. Like, I think he's all I think he's telling readers, like, hey, you're going to be okay. <laughs> you, yeah. can, you can be okay. Well, and I think he represents 
kids that just feel sort of uncomfortable in their own lives too. I mean, kids who have not experienced trauma or loss can still understand that feeling of like being on the eve of freshman year or um, he reads very much like the new kid to me. Like, you know, I sort of forgot. I think when I picked the book back up, for some reason, I thought that he was like the new kid at school, like he had moved. So I think, you know, whether a kid has recently moved and doesn't know anybody or is just nervous to go to a bigger school or is starting on a new team and doesn't know anybody, like everybody to a certain extent feels like a misfit in their own lives. Um, And Charlie, unfortunately, has become a misfit and has become uncomfortable and and has has struggled through so much due to factors way outside of his own control of course but I think that there's something in his emotional journey that pretty much any teenager can relate to even if it's just angst I mean even if it's like quite frankly stupid angst like (laughs) the fact that so many kids attach themselves to this book to the extent that they put quotes from it in their AAM profile like you're making me nostalgic for for AIM I'm always nostalgic for AIM I miss AIM I'm not I miss AIM but the fact that like so many kids all over who likely did and did not experience trauma at different levels could relate to Charlie's mental health journey to differing levels like everybody still attached themselves to these quotes and repeated them and like made them their own in a very heart-wrenching way like there's something in here for everybody and I think it's just like a uniting experience that a lot of teens have to just have to find a way to be comfortable in their own lives and in their own skin. To your point about him making new friends, this isn't a passage exactly, but there was a specific scene and a moment that I wanted to share because I think it's really an interesting prediction about what's to come for Charlie. So as you mentioned, Charlie's friends are all seniors and they've graduated and he's back at school post-graduation and he's all bummed out because his best friends are gone and he's packing up his locker and there's a kid who is right next to him and Charlie says, hi, and he introduces himself to this kid and he's like, hi, I'm Charlie. And the kid's like, I know. And he walks away. And I had so many feelings about just those two words. I know. And I, I wanted to talk about them because I was thinking like, is this sort of an indication that things have flipped? Like Charlie began the school year as an outsider and now people know him. Like, has he become quote unquote popular? Or is it just that this other kid is maybe kind of like Charlie was at the beginning of the year and is extremely observant and has just picked up on the fact that this kid who has a locker right next to him maybe has the word Charlie printed on his binders. I just, I thought that that was a really poignant and very like efficient way to potentially say a lot about what Charlie's journey has been like over the previous year. I think it could be interpreted either way and just as powerfully. Um, I think you just gave two really good options and I think I think it's deliberately ambiguous, which I like. And one thing I really liked about this book that occurred to me as I was thinking about it after I read it is that it's pretty uncommon for a protagonist to be the wallflower. Like, it's way more common, especially in YA books, for the protagonist to either be someone who's bullied and is, like, afraid to go to school because of that, only has one good friend, or on the flip side, to be someone super popular who also is, like, usually in most YA books, like, carrying a secret with them, but they have to put on a brave face at school because they have all these friends. They're, like, they're the life of the party, but and, but they're usually hiding something. So I think this was unique in the sense that we don't usually have a protagonist like Charlie who's, you know, he's not bullied, but he does have, like, an element of loneliness to him. Um, and he's not super popular e- either. He's just, he's a wallflower. <laughs> and I think most authors usually pick one extreme or the other, like, in, especially in a high school or middle school book. Like, they're bullied or they're super popular. And I think a more common experience is probably you're a little more like Charlie. You you have your friends, but you're maybe the quiet one, or maybe not the most common, but a, a very common experience is to not be super popular, but to have your group of friends. People, like, maybe sometimes are a little mean to you, but overall leave you alone. So I think maybe that's why it resonates, too, because in terms of social status, I think there are probably more Charlies in the world than there are the kid who's really badly bullied or the really popular. You know, that, that that's like a handful in each grade. So I think maybe that's another reason it resonates. Yeah, I think most experiences are much more nuanced than we get in a lot of teen oriented pop culture and I also think that part of it is that like my sense is that other people see Charlie very differently than he sees himself and I relate to that so much because I saw myself in high school as this like shy lonely kind of awkward girl and I was that way to some extent 
But when I look back on it from an objective perspective, I was really involved in high school. I was the president of my class. I was the editor of the newspaper. And I don't say any of that to sound like braggy in hindsight, but even as I was having those experiences and like living that high school journey, I felt like I looked stupid all the time. Oh, <laughs> there's nuance to that. Just like Charlie. I mean, he feels really awkward and he feels like a wallflower and he feels like he doesn't know how to make friends, but he's found his way into this kind of cool group. I don't know if they're of senior. Of yeah. Seniors, they're seniors. As a freshman, like. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, you know, I don't know if they're quote unquote popular in the like teen movie kind of way, but they have their own stuff going on and it's not like they're sitting home alone on the weekends. They go to parties. They go out to the movies. Like they do all these activities together. He has this very rich social life because of them. Um, and they really like him. It's not like he's just a tag along. They're like egging him on yeah. to become part of their games and they like want to see him stand up. And he even gets to have moments of being the hero in the cafeteria after Brad's <laughs> father, which is like a very, this uh, was like a very dark point in the book for me where where Brad, the sort was, of like football star's father, catches Brad and Patrick together because they've been having this affair. Brad is out of school for a few days. When he finally comes back, he's being a total ass to Patrick and icing him out. And then in the lunchroom, when Patrick tries to approach him, Brad uses a word that I will not use in reference to Patrick um, and Patrick fights back and he is not especially physically strong, but twist Charlie is which I would not have guessed and speaks he's like a surprise ninja yeah he's a ninja because he has this brother who's a football player and I did not see that coming and I didn't I didn't really remember that scene to be honest I was like wow go Charlie but because Charlie would probably (laughs) never own that as part of his identity but it's like oh wait I have this brother who's really strong and tough and forced me to kind of learn how to be strong and tough and I can kick all of these guys asses and so it's Charlie who steps in to help Patrick when there's this whole brawl going on in the cafeteria and he gets to be the hero and not only like against some random guys against the like freaking football team the jocks but popular guys yeah and Charlie was really never right like the way Charlie defines himself and the way he talks about himself you would never expect him to have that opportunity and it's not just about physical strength and sort of like our toxic views on masculinity it's about him standing up for his friend and doing mm-hmm. the right thing in the moment because his friend is heartbroken and so I think like the nuance that we get with Charlie where he's not one thing he doesn't fall into one category he is a complicated guy for so many reasons and he does not see himself in any way that's close to the way that others see him and he really doesn't even see himself the way that we as readers come to see him by the end of the book and I think that probably gets the heart too of like why so many people relate to this book two of my sisters actually told me that like you know when I when I posted a picture on Instagram that we were doing this book on the podcast they both were like oh my god I love this book so much and I did not they don't even really read that much like I didn't know yeah. that I didn't know and you that this and your was a thing are such different personalities so I think it appeals to so many different personality types yeah. which is interesting yeah I think it's really interesting and it clearly is very resonant with a lot of kids and adults regardless of their experience sort of in in wrapping up this part of the conversation is there a part of this book that resonates most deeply with you there's so much here and we could go on for so long talking about all of the issues in more depth but I would love to know what you find most resonant in this adult reading experience of the book I know I keep coming back to this but I think the way you cope with trauma and internalize it and how it impacts how you see yourself and how you interact with the world I think I like Charlie um, I didn't repress anything but I was very much just like not talking about any form of trauma I was just in different ways than him but I was just keeping myself as busy as possible like between ballet and schoolwork I was like there's no time for anything else so I think just the not being ready to confront it I think there I think with him of course there was I mean your mind protects you so he had memories repressed for that reason but I think he was also there were times when he was definitely getting the vibe that something was wrong in his childhood Mm -hmm. and he explicitly said um I don't have the direct quote but like I don't want to this is making me uncomfortable I don't want to think about it anymore I think he didn't want to know really which is totally understandable so I think I can relate to that level of like you know you just you don't want to confront that you don't want to go to it there like usually you don't want to go to a therapist and get into these gory details you want to pretend it never happened you want to you know just 
use different coping mechanisms to uh, to numb the pain, to try to find your place in the world um, and distract yourself. So yeah, I think a lot of that resonated with me. And then especially, you know, I was most moved by the end when um, he was like coming to terms with everything he'd been through, his best friend's suicide, his abuse, just all of it. And yeah, like I said, I mean, it seems like a simple message, but it's so important that, you know, you can't control your past and there are going to be things in the future that you can't control either, but you can decide where you're going and like you do have so much more agency than you think. But in order to really embrace that and act on it, you do have to confront what's causing you pain, what's traumatized you. Uh, and when he started to do that first with the conversation with Sam and then by going into psychiatric treatment, I think that really freed him to go on to hopefully have a great life overall. Did this recent experience of rereading The Perks of Being a Wallflower make you love the book all the more or do you feel that it's ruined it for you in some way? This might be kind of a cop-out, but I, I think I liked it just as much, but maybe for different reasons. So there were a few problematic things. One thing that bothered me, I will say about, I mean, I think the drug and alcohol use was very realistic. One thing that did bother me was that in a book that literally threw every issue out there, I thought it was a little weird that there was never an overdose or alcohol poisoning. Cause you would think some, I remember even like when my brother was in high school, I would hear casual mentions of like, Oh, this person went to the hospital over the weekend. Cause they, it was their first time drink, they drank too much. And, um, one thing that did strike me towards the end, uh, when he and Patrick were drinking and using pretty heavily and he still pulls off straight A's. I thought that maybe it was a little bit, I, I get that he was super smart, but you're in school for most of the day. And then you're spending the rest of getting high when you're doing your homework, like yeah. when you're doing the reading, are you not super hungover? Like, so, um, so I thought it didn't really show the repercussions mm-hmm. of that. Um, I don't have a problem with the fact that this is what they were doing. Cause I think in their case, I know you and I both talked like, this is not what we did in high school. I know a, a certain number of people do, but I do think that because, um, this author was addressing so many teenage issues, I think, it would have been useful to have like maybe kind of even just like a scary moment of oh my god did they because they were taking some pretty heavy drugs yeah. like it he was wasn't doing just like LSD a, yeah. LSD yeah like he had a bad trip but it wasn't mm-hmm. like his life was in danger like I just think when kids are drinking using drugs there's going to be like at least one scary moment or it's going to impact your grades no matter how smart you are but in the context of uh 2018 2019 one thing I really did appreciate is that it addresses the sexual abuse of a boy because we don't hear about that enough unless it's like an institutionalized situation like the catholic church and in the me too era which i mean i think me too is great but there's, you know, of course, this hashtag culture, mass-produced products, and a lot of them say believe women. And uh, that kind of makes me cringe a little because I think it should be belief survivors. It sends the message that, you know, boys or gender non-conforming folks aren't ever victims and they should not be left out of this conversation. So in, some, in that aspect, I think this book is ahead of its time because I think a lot of us who are involved in advocacy have been trying to like rework the messaging a little to say, let's be inclusive of every gender when we talk about sexual violence. Um, so I really appreciated that this author addressed that because I think, I think there is even an additional stigma faced by boys who are sexually abused. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, um, to me, that was also another reason I picked it when he sent me the list. Cause I think it's something that needs to be talked about more because I think uh, me too. I think women are feeling more open. I'm not sure if it's been as empowering for men just because and I know a lot of it is well-intentioned, but when you just hashtag everything, believe women, that's kind of implying that we're the only ones who experience these things which is, which is not true, especially children. So. Yeah, it's exclusionary to a lot of people with very important voices and perspectives to share on the issue. Um, I agree with you. I appreciate the book for all kinds of different reasons than I did as a kid. As I mentioned, I think I sort of bought into like the culty following of it when I was a teenager and like the idea of this offbeat group of friends having all these experiences together but didn't fully appreciate the depth of the subjects that the author dove into and the depths of the experiences that these kids had to go through. And as an adult, reading that and sort of being hit with the weight of that, it just kind of gave me a whole different look at the story and at Charlie and Sam. And um, I want to watch the movie now. I actually just told my husband, I think we're going to maybe watch the movie this weekend because I'm yeah, like, I think I think I'm going to watch it tonight. <laughs> I really want, I don't usually watch the movie like right after I read a book for SSR. But with this one, I think I might have to make an exception because I, I felt so much more for the book this time around. And so I'm like, I feel like I need to give the movie another shot too. Yeah, I think I am 
definitely thinking. I actually like wanted to watch it before we did this, but I ran out of time. So, uh, <laughs> but I'm definitely going to watch. So, other than the perks of being a wallflower, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Um, so, actually, this book just came out today. I had an advanced copy. It's called The Gifted School, and it is so timely. It's hilarious. Like this author could not have had better timing. It's about this fictional area in Colorado where uh, I think it's a charter school is being opened, and they're only accepting one percent the top 1% of applicants. So the parents start to go to insane measures. And these kids are like in, I think like fifth, sixth grade, parents are going to insane measures to get their kids in and like, you know, breaking law, like, you know, kind of uh-huh. exactly what we're seeing right. in the news. All of the things. You and I had a long conversation <laughs> yes. about that last time we saw each other, actually. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. And Aunt Becky um, letting us Aunt all Becky. down. Aunt Becky. She's like going to be in jail for, yeah. Bye, Aunt Becky. And, and right now I'm in the middle of The Wonder by Emma Donahue, who wrote Rome. It's very different from Rome, but I'm really liking it. I also recently read, it's called Long Bright River. It comes out in January 2020. If you like literary mysteries, I would definitely add that to the list. And finally, um, American Girls by Nancy Jo Sales. Is I'm reading that right now, actually. Yeah, I'm like halfway through it. I've been, um, because it's nonfiction, I've kind of been like coming and going from it. It's a really, really good read. I'd also kind of, kind of relevant well. to this conversation about the perks of being a wallflower and like teen culture. And obviously the perks of being a wallflower takes place in the 90s. And we both agreed that it feels timeless, I think. But uh, yeah. there's no technology. And so American Girls kind of gives you this like interesting twist um, and a very dark and disturbing window about like being a teenager in 2019. I'm really grateful that social media wasn't that much of a thing when I was a teenager. Yeah. I don't think it would have been good for me. Me too. Zanga and MySpace, it was enough for me. Way more That's than right. Enough. And AIM, I I, of course. AIM and I had a live journal that was super angsty. Like I hope it's not out there in the archive of the internet anywhere because it would be real embarrassing for me if anyone ever found it. Sometimes I do try to find my old Zanga, and um, I haven't been successful yet, but I'm sort of happy about it because no, I don't need to revisit it. I would be afraid to read what I put on LiveJournal as a 16-year-old. I think it's best that I don't know. Well, <laughs> I have some vague memories. <laughs> They're embarrassing. Well, things that you don't need to be embarrassed to put on the internet, all of your work as a journalist, your great tweets, your Instagram content. I'm going to include links to all of your stuff in our show notes. Listeners, please check out Caitlin's work. She's a fantastic journalist and my spirit guide into the world of freelancing. I will also include links in the show notes to The Perks of Being a Wallflower, as well as all of the books that Caitlin mentioned. I definitely want to read all of them. Caitlin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for your advocacy um, on behalf of survivors of sexual abuse and assault. And um, thank you for taking the time to read this book and to talk through it so thoughtfully. Your perspective is much appreciated um, and certainly adds to my understanding of this book. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was such a great conversation. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>